Good morning. I would just like to say a big thank you to many of you who've been praying for Lynn and myself over the past six months. We have so valued that and God has been good to us. I'd like to teach this morning, continuing the kind of theme we've been exploring over recent weeks, looking at faith and hope. And I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. These three remain. These are some of the most well-loved words of Paul. And yet, when it comes to that last phrase, I've always been just a little curious. Because Paul declares that even in the age to come, when completeness arrives, when many things that he's described will pass away, when Jesus has returned to reclaim and renew the earth, when we are resurrected and when we see him and know him face to face, yet even then, faith, hope and love still remain, still continue to be fundamental. Now, I can understand this with regard to love, because love, which is, of course, a central focus of this passage, is at the very heart of God's nature. And so, of course, this will continue to be fundamental in the coming age. God is love. So when God is fully present, then love will, of course, be revealed. But for now, I'm not going to focus on love, but rather on the other two virtues that Paul insists will remain even when completeness comes. So what about faith? Surely don't we read in Hebrews 11 that faith is believing, being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. So why would we still need faith when in fact we see things clearly? And what about hope? In Romans 8, Paul, talking about the hope of resurrection, says if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. Or as one translation puts it, who hopes for what he already sees? So on that day, what remains for us to hope for? And yet, nevertheless, we read that faith and hope, as well as love, remain. So I, I'd like to briefly unpack what these words actually mean here and the sense in which they carry over and continue into the coming age. And given that these are so fundamental and will remain fundamental forever, 
I want to touch on some of the ways that in our daily lives, the Holy Spirit is seeking to form these within us. These qualities, these virtues, and how he's wanting to form them in us now, ahead of that day, in anticipation of the age to come. So looking first at faith, back in, I think it was 2019, we talked a little about what we mean by faith. And if we struggle to see how faith could be relevant in the coming age, it may be because we've absorbed the popular view that faith is merely some sort of wishful thinking, a kind of naive optimism that, that things will just somehow work out OK. If that's how we view faith, then, of course, it's hard to see how that would really be relevant when we are directly in the presence of Jesus, because by then we'd really know that things had indeed worked out OK. Our faith would have been shown to have been fully valid and it might therefore seem like faith was no longer needed. But of course, that's not really what New Testament faith is. We saw back in 2019 that in the Gospels, it most typically refers to trust, trust in God, confidence in who he is and what he's like and in what he says. And of course, God is like Jesus. And beyond simple trust, faith carries the more comprehensive meaning of allegiance, the wholehearted allegiance and loyalty that we yield to God, the obedience of faith. And of course, when Jesus returns in glory, when all things are renewed and restored, and when we ourselves are resurrected into a new form of life, and where we are taught that we will then share responsibility alongside him, reigning over a renewed creation with him. On that day and in that age, we will truly be those who trust him implicitly and utterly and perfectly, and whose allegiance to him is total and unwavering. So in that sense, genuinely, faith remains. And Jesus goes further and he actually teaches us that the level of responsibility in that coming age will, in some sense, be related to the extent that we have learned to walk with him in obedient trust and loyalty in this age. So if that is our destiny, how is the Holy Spirit forming and forging this faith in us now? Because, you see, I want to cooperate with the Spirit as he develops in me characteristics that will be fit for that coming age. Those things within me which are inconsistent with the new reality of that day cannot remain and will not remain. But I want to invest in what will truly endure. Uncomfortable though it is. One of the principal ways that the Spirit grows this faith in me now is through trials. Faith in the sense of our trust in God and our loyalty to him is like muscles. It grows strong and it develops through exercise. And that, as I guess some of us are discovering with all the walking we're doing at the moment, that can sometimes be hard. 
It sometimes means holding on to God through times of hardship. Peter says in his first epistle, there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honour on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Or as the message uh, paraphrase reads, I know you have put up with every kind of aggravation. Pure gold put in the fire comes out of it proved gold. Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out as proved genuine. When Jesus wraps this all up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. So what does it look like for our faith, our trust and our loyalty in God to be tested and proven through trials? Well, for me, it calls to mind the example uh, of Daniel's three friends in the Old Testament. Remember in Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. That is proven faith. Tested faith. To quote the lyrics of a worship song that I've recently come to enjoy from Cody Carnes says this, I won't bow to idols, I'll stand strong and worship you, and if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice, because you're there too. Now, of course, the sorts of trials that we face, at least here and now, don't typically involve us potentially dying for our faith, like those friends of Daniel. Many times it will simply be, as the message paraphrase put it, every kind of aggravation. But you see, if we don't practice trusting God through the small things, the small aggravations, then our faith will never grow to enable us to withstand more substantial testing. Nor will it properly prepare us for our place in the coming kingdom. And how then in these small trials, in these little aggravations, can we know if we are genuinely learning to trust? Well, I would suggest by the attitude with which we confront such tough times. You see, often our first response is to complain, to moan, whether to God or to others or to ourselves. That's just how most people react. But James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. I don't know how easy it is to actually consider trials pure joy. 
But when aided by the Spirit, we can sustain a degree of underlying confidence in God in the middle of our struggles, then we know that our faith is growing. So faith, in this sense of trust and allegiance to God, does continue into the new age that is coming. But the Spirit needs to grow this in us here and now. And one way he does this is through the small and maybe the not so small trials that we encounter. Are we willing to accept these times as opportunities to learn? But what about hope? As I said at the start, it seems kind of strange to hear Paul declaring that hope endures and carries on into the new age. After all, when Jesus is fully and finally revealed, when on earth, when the earth is renewed and the dead are raised, what else is there to hope for? If we find this a little strange, I think it's because we tend to grasp so little about the true reality of that new age. As I've sometimes touched on in previous teaching, Christ's appearing in glory does not mark some sort of final conclusion to everything. Rather, it is the true beginning. And our responsibilities do not cease leaving us with nothing better to do than strum on harps. Rather, we are commissioned afresh to a whole new level of authority and responsibility for which our lives in this age have been the preparation. C.S. Lewis expresses it beautifully in the very closing words of the final book in the Narnia series, The Last Battle. Speaking of Aslan, the great lion, he says this, as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Yes, on the day of Christ our first hope is fulfilled, but we then begin a future filled with a never-ending succession of new and thrilling hopes, the great story in which every chapter is better than the one before. When discussing the reality of resurrection, Paul says that if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all, men, of all people most to be pitied. But we don't hope only for this life. We carry hope into the life to come. And faced with this pandemic at the moment, when so many have died, we need to unashamedly declare that our hope is not some vague, intangible, pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. It's rooted in Jesus. A Jesus who not only affirmed to Martha that her just-deceased brother would rise again, but who then went on to declare, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Therefore, Paul can assert that hope, like faith, is something that continues on into the coming age. And the Spirit is seeking to prepare us for this, both to sustain us with hope now and to expand our hope for the future. So how does he do this? How does he grow and strengthen our hope? And I ask the question because, as I said with faith, I want to cooperate with the Spirit as he develops in me characteristics that will be appropriate for the coming age. As I've said, those things in me which are inconsistent with the new reality of that day cannot remain, and they will not remain. So I want to invest in what will truly endure, and hope is one of those things. It seems to me from the New Testament that there are two elements that the Spirit uses to sustain and expand hope for us. Firstly, anticipation. He is that work within us to help us to see, to grasp and to be grasped by the incredible future that is ours because of Jesus. As he says in Ephesians 3, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power. For us who believe. The Spirit wants us to be so thrilled, so excited about the hope to which he has called us, that everything else falls into a new perspective. We don't need to be embarrassed to allow our imaginations to soar as we reflect on God's destiny for us. Anticipation. But the second element that the Holy Spirit uses to develop our hope is less obviously appealing, and that is patient endurance, learning to hold on. Paul explains in Romans 5 that endurance builds character which gives us hope that will never disappoint us, and all this happens because God has given us the Holy Spirit who fills our hearts with his love. And in fact, Endurance and hope reinforce each other. Endurance helps build hope in us. And at the same time, our hope strengthens us to endure. Paul commends the believers in Thessalonica when he says, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So endurance builds hope and hope inspires endurance. You see, there are some things that simply cannot be learned by listening to a podcast or me teaching or reading a book. Some aspects of our characters that just cannot be formed through the easy and the comfortable times. Some things are best learned through the hard times to make us fit for the coming kingdom, hope has to be not merely inspired in us, but also refined in us. And though sometimes we wish it were not so, 
Patient endurance is most often the thing that does this. So if you or I are going through a period that is demanding your patient endurance, and surely these past months have been just this sort of time for many of us, then let us seek to cooperate with the Spirit as he tries, seeks to use this situation to sift us and to refine us and then to re-envision and re-inspire us with hope. Much as we would often like to find a shortcut to avoid these times, God knows that the best way out is sometimes through. But if this is going to be effective, we have to consciously engage with God through the process, not merely try to get around it. There was a worship song that has resonated with me over this past year, and it uses the image of a wine press and expresses it like this. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you into your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. As we've said over recent weeks, and as Adam shared last week, for many of us, and for many, many others also, this has been a hard time and it's far from over. And yes, the prospect of vaccination gives cause for hope, but as those who have given our allegiance to Jesus and have placed our true hope in him, we are called to more than just hunker down and passively wait for this storm to pass. We are to allow God's spirit to form us and to shape us through this period to refine and deepen our trust and our hope in him. As we have shared repeatedly, as we walk in love with him, God will always, always work to bring good out of every situation, even, perhaps most especially, through hard times. He will use the trials we face to distill and to strengthen our trust and our allegiance to him. And he sets before us the hope of a coming kingdom, inspiring us with anticipation and refining our hope through patient endurance. We want to conclude by giving just a few minutes for us to pause and to reflect to identify what the Holy Spirit may wish to highlight to each of us in our own individual situations.